as the old saying goes, I'm not who I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be. Amen? We've been redeemed. God's still working on us. He's going to bring us to that point of completion one day. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that we are, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we saw, I'm going to, Alan, I'm going to cut this off. We saw um, in an earlier passage about a young man named Saul, and we saw, first saw him in connection with the stoning of Stephen. As Stephen was becoming the first martyr in the history of the church, um, there was a young man. The Bible says he was standing there and he was holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. And he was in full agreement with everything that was happening. After Stephen died, uh, after that first martyrdom, rather than feeling sorry about it, uh, rather than him questioning his decisions, or maybe he did question the decision, but he didn't end up saying, I was wrong. In fact, this fanned the flames of the fury with inside Saul. He could not stand these people, these followers of the way, these folks who had, in his mind, in his heart, he believed had perverted and were destroying the Jewish faith. And so he wanted to, to take them all down. And the Bible says that he was going all around Jerusalem and Judea and, and, and he was putting in prison and uh, uh, trying to hurt both men and women, all those who are believers and disciples. And so we, um, we get to our passage today in chapter 9, because the rest of chapter 8, remember we talked about uh, Philip. Luke had kind of put the spotlight on Philip about his mission to Samaria, and then he went south in the mission to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. But now we come back to this young man named Saul. If you would, please stand with me in honor and reverence for reading of the Word of God. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them back, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And he was approaching Damascus on this mission. A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind. For three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. 
the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. And I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. We see here in this story about a man named Saul... Someone who was radically changed. Someone who was converted to Christianity. Someone who went from being totally against and completely trying to destroy the church to someone who would be a foundation of the outreach of the church to the Gentiles. To us, basically. How did this happen? What can we learn from his conversion? We see in looking at the story of Saul that there is a very specific faith that he came to. And that's really important for us today as we think about our own lives and what we believe and our family and our friends and our coworkers, those around us, that it is a specific faith that is very important. That you and I are saved not by simply believing in something. It's not belief in belief. It's not being spiritual as the world defines spirituality that gives us a relationship with Jesus Christ and, and eternal life with him that begins now in this life and one day as we leave this life will end in heaven in all eternity. It's not just a general thing, but it's a specific faith. And we can see that very importantly in the conversion of Saul. Because let me tell you, Saul had faith he had a belief. He had a belief that was stronger than most of us in here, I can guarantee. Because most of us haven't put everything to the side and said, I'm going to go at great cost, at great effort, expense, and I'm going to do what I think I need to do for my faith whenever, wherever, however difficult it may be. Saul already had that kind of faith. But the problem was... His faith was in the wrong object. It is not simply when the Bible says faith saves us. It is not talking about a general faith, but a very specific faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And you and I, if we are to be believers, if we are to be Christians, we must have that specific faith. Maybe you've noticed as we've walked through the book of Acts, maybe you haven't, but we have not yet once read the word Christian in the book of Acts. In fact, there were no Christians at this point. It will not be until a little further, until Acts chapter 11, verse 26, almost the end of that chapter, almost halfway through the book of Acts, will we see that believers were first called Christians at the church in Antioch. So what have they been calling these people all of this time? What is Luke, how has he been referring to these folks? Well, sometimes he uses the word believers or disciples. Sometimes he talks about the saints. Sometimes he says those who call on the name of the Lord. But one of the most often used names is those who call, those who follow the way or followers of the way. If you would have asked somebody uh, back then, what's a Christian? They'd had no idea. But if you said, what's a follower of the way? Well, that's those people who believe and follow Jesus Christ. Why would they call it? the way. They were reflecting exactly what Jesus said when he said in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He was very specific. The way, the truth, the life, and in case you didn't get that, no one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is derided. It is ridiculed often in this pluralistic world we have today where everybody wants to believe everything is okay and say all beliefs are equal and people say that's so exclusive. How how can you know you think you know better than everybody else? No. I think Jesus knows better than everybody else. And if Jesus said this is the way, the truth and the life and nobody's going to get to the Father except through me, then I'm going to take Jesus' word for it. And the early believers were so convinced of that in a world where they had just as many or more religions to choose from and the ancient, uh, the Greek and Roman and Persian and all sorts of different influences and religions that were floating around, they said there's only one way. And they were so strongly convicted of that that they said that's what we'll be called by. We are followers of the way. And that way is faith in Jesus Christ. So as we think about the conversion of Saul and our own conversion, it's not just that we're churchgoers, that that we are spiritual people or religious people. If we know Jesus Christ, if we know God, if we have a relationship with him, it's because we followed the way. That is faith in Jesus. We see that there is that specific, very specific faith. We also see that there is a costly forgiveness involved in the faith. I've always been struck by the Lord's words to Saul on that road. And his conversion is so famous that we kind of use that term of describing people coming to the Lord. We'll say, I had my Damascus Road experience. Or people will say, I saw the light. And we're referring back to Saul's conversion and how it really is a pattern for many of us as believers. 
We have to have a very specific faith. We also have to realize that we are receiving a costly forgiveness. You and I have to realize that we are all sinners. We're not good people who God got lucky to get on his team. We are sinners that God looked down on in grace and mercy. And because of his great grace and mercy, not because of any deeds that we have done, we can be saved. The Lord Jesus spoke to Saul that day. Saul, Saul, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. He could have said, well, I'm Jesus, and you're persecuting my church. You're harming my believers. But he said, Saul, you are persecuting me. And the reality is that there is such a unity between Jesus and his church that each and every time somebody harms his church, you're harming Jesus. You're harming him not only in the fact that it's sin and he paid for that sin on the cross, but you're harming him because he says the church is my body. The church is the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ on this earth today. As he ascended into heaven, physically he's no longer here in his body, in his singular body that he, served, that he lived 33 years on this earth in, but his body is now the church. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church. It is a personal thing to him. It's why in scripture there are a very limited number of instances where church discipline can go so far that someone is removed from the church itself. And those who harm the church fall into one of those categories, those who intentionally bring harm. There is a very costly forgiveness involved in coming to Jesus. So many people try to make faith into a cheap, easy believism. They say, well, okay, I say a prayer, I attend a church, and, and all right, I'm in, no big deal. And the reality is that when we come to Christ, we are coming for a Savior. And if we're not sinners, we don't need a Savior. That's why Jesus said, I did not come for the healthy because they need no help. The righteous need no help, but it is sinners that I have come for. And just like Paul who later on in his life said, I can testify that this is true, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Saul said, I was the worst. I wasn't trying to build the kingdom of God. I wasn't trying to ignore the kingdom of God. I was trying to tear down the kingdom of God because I was trying to destroy the church. And that grieved him greatly. He understood that there was a great forgiveness that he had to receive. And so that's a very costly thing. Saul's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his faith that was moved from faith in an old religion to faith in a person, and that forgiveness that he received, they caused him to really think and to ponder for a long time. The Bible says... When his companions got him up and they knew that they heard a voice and there was a bright light, but they didn't see everything that, that he saw and they didn't quite hear everything he heard, but they got him up and he was blind and they led him to the city. 
And by the way, that city of Damascus, you know, most of us are not really all that good on Mississippi geography or American geography, much less Middle Eastern geography. That's three hours away, or excuse me, let me say, that is um, 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, I know what 150 miles is because I travel it all the time. You can ask these two right here. They travel it all the time because from Columbus to, to, uh, to down there where they live, out in the Myrick community outside of Laurel, it's about 150 miles every time I go down there. It's almost a three-hour trip. But this was on foot, and this trip would have uh, taken about a week in that day. This man hated Jesus and his followers so much that he went a week north just to try to arrest people and bring them back and persecute them. But when he came to this faith, when Jesus met him in a way in which he no longer resisted and he converted, the Bible says he did not eat or drink anything for three days. What was he doing in that time? I can guarantee you that he was praying, he was fasting, he was doing business with God, he was coming to grips with the fact of how wrong he had been and how much his life had to change as he was now a believer. Well, he was just sitting there. He was saved, but he had no friends, right? I mean, none. Can you think about it? This guy has just turned his back on the folks that he was with, and now he says he's one of these folks he was trying to kill. And so the ones that he'd been with, of course, they don't want to have anything to do with him. And now everybody's afraid of him because they still think he's a, he's a spy. He's trying to pretend he's turned over a new leaf. He's trying to pretend that he's a Christian. But we know this guy. He was breathing out murderous threats against us. So God sends a vision to a man named Ananias. And this is the only time we hear or see anything about Ananias in Scripture. There's one other Ananias, and we know it's not him because he's already dead, right? Remember Ananias and Sapphira, the folks that lied to the church, and God struck them down. They're gone. This Ananias we don't ever hear about before or after. But God comes to him in a vision. He says, Ananias, I want you to go see Saul. And uh, lay hands on him, and, and I've got a great mission prepared for him. And Ananias is kind of like, mm, wait a minute, Lord, I, I must have bad reception here. Something's not right. You, you just said Saul. Just in case you need to be reminded, he's that guy who's persecuting all the Christians. I know about him, all the wrong he's doing. And the Bible says, no, that's okay. He's my chosen vessel. God says, I have to show him and teach him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Boy, I bet Saul was really excited to hear that, right? I get to find out how much I get to suffer for the name of Christ. But you know, that was something that Saul accepted, not unwillingly, but he actually wove that into the fabric of his life. He counted it a privilege that he was able to suffer for the name of Christ. So that many years later, he writes the words, I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
Paul says, I want to know Christ so much that it hurts. I want to know Christ, not only that I can participate in the power of the resurrection, that is the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through me fully, but I want to know Christ in a way that I participate in his sufferings. I do whatever for the cause of Christ, and I'm willing to suffer for him because I just love Jesus that much. But Paul had a specific faith that he had come to, and he had come to understand a costly forgiveness. But the last thing he needed was a new family. Paul received a new family. I love the words of Ananias. He argued with God just a little bit. He kind of, you know, made a little back talk to the Lord, but he was kind of getting it straight. But God, God set him straight, and Ananias went. And Ananias enters into the room, and the first words out of his mouth are, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me. Brother Saul. Saul had lost everyone, but he had gained a whole new family. He had become part of the family of faith, the followers of the way, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had become part of a new family. That new family that even if his old family, all of his former ties turned against him, thought he'd gone crazy, thought he was wacko, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. But he realized there was a new family that loved him. And the Bible says that Ananias put hands on Saul and prayed for him. Why did he do that? Well, maybe it was just a spiritual, religious, good thing to do as he prayed. But, you know, I think there was something further there because I want to imagine that Saul probably hadn't been touched by anybody in three days since he'd been lifted up and walked to Damascus. And Saul couldn't see his face. He couldn't see the warmth and love on Ananias' face as he was reaching out. But he could feel the pressure of his hands as they laid upon him. And he could hear the warmth in his voice as he prayed for Saul. And I want to believe that that moment, the sound of Ananias' voice and the feel of his touch, I believe that stuck with Saul for the rest of his life. And any time he began to doubt, any time he began to wonder or get discouraged, he remembered that God loved him and was with him. Because Ananias, who came and was taking his life into his own hands, being in the very presence of this man who had destroyed Christians, Ananias loved him enough to risk reaching out. Because reaching out to others always involves risk. But because we love as we were loved by Christ, we're willing to risk, to reach out, and to love people in the name of Jesus. It's like I said, we don't ever hear about Ananias again. We don't know. For many of us, the greatest thing we may ever do in our life might be to simply help another person to walk a little closer to God. We might be there for them in that one key moment of their life 
in which they are so desperately needing a believer to love them and walk alongside them and pray for them and care for them. Because Saul's life was forever changed because a man named Ananias was willing to be obedient to the Lord and reach out in a very scary situation. So we think about Saul and all that he did. We, of course, know him by his later name as Paul. His name changes. He becomes a great apostle. He writes all these books. He carries out the mission trips and spreads the gospel. And we think this amazing guy who did miracles and and shared the gospel and did all these things. But we forget there was a moment in time where he was blind and broken and hungry and completely vulnerable. And God touched him through Ananias. And you and I are surrounded by people who are blind spiritually. (laughs) They are broken. They are needy. They are hurting. Some away from the faith. Some have never come to the faith. Some are very spiritual and they need, though, to know true Christianity. They need to know the way. They need to understand that Jesus has forgiven them. Some cannot believe that they can be forgiven because of what they've done. And some just need that touch of someone reaching out and sharing love through a touch or a kind word. I want to encourage you. Be the Ananias today. You may never be a superstar. People may never know your name. But you can change eternity by ministering like Ananias did. Pray with me. Father God, we come to you and we're so grateful for all that you did in the life of Saul who became Paul. We're so grateful for the things he went on to do in spreading the gospel and writing words of Holy Scripture as he was inspired by you. But Lord, today we want to just stop and take stock and just say thankful. We're thankful, Lord, for Ananias, a guy we don't talk about and we barely remember if we knew him at all. But we recognize today that one believer, when we have a little courage to obey you and follow you, Father, we can change eternity. God, we pray that you would help us to be bold and faithful as Ananias was and as Saul became. Bless now our time of invitation as you're working in our lives to draw us to you. May we say yes to every calling which you've placed on our lives, whether that be a calling to church membership, A calling to confess our faith publicly for the very first time. Perhaps someone here today has never placed their faith in you. And they need to respond to the calling of the gospel. If it's a calling for service or for ministry, whatever it is, God help us to say yes to your calling. Lord, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.